This afternoon we consider the final commandment, the tenth commandment, as it's taught and summarized in Lord's Day 4. So in connection with that, I invite you to turn with me first to Psalm 119. We'll read there the first section and then the last section of Psalm 119. If you remember back a couple months ago, we read through Psalm 119 one section at a time in our morning services as we prepared to read God's law, because Psalm 119 is a psalm devoted to the praise of God's law, and ultimately devoted to the praise of God through that. And that's what we see in these, this first and last section. Psalm 119, verse 1. This is God's holy word. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless who walk according to the law of God. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong, they walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. And so begins the psalmist's prayer, and now we'll read its conclusion, uh, verse 169. May my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Now we'll turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to Mark. We'll turn to chapter 7. Mark 7, we'll read there the first 13 verses. In Psalm 119, we see the beauty of God's law. Here in Mark 7, we see the danger of making our own laws equal to God's law. Mark 7, verse 1, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help 
you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your own tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. This is the word of the Lord. Now we'll turn to a faithful summary of God's word to Lord's Day 44. You'll find that this afternoon in the back of our Psalter hymnal on page 893. Page 893, Lord's Day 44, question and answer 113. What is God's will for you in the 10th commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commands should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commands perfectly? No, In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature, and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image, until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thinking back to this morning's service, as we run away through the Ten Commandments, did you notice how out of date some of them are? The Fourth Commandment warns about allowing the alien within your gates not to do any work. Presumably the gates there refer to the city gates, but have any of us ever seen a city with gates? And when was the last time you heard someone call a foreigner an alien? Then there's the Tenth Commandment, warning us not to covet your neighbor's manservant or maidservant, ox or donkey. No one here has a servant in the same way that the commandment speaks about the Israelites having them. Even if we have animals, I don't think any of us have any oxen. Yet what stands out even more than the ancient terminology is the fact that although these commands were given some 3,200 to 3,500 years ago, the hard issues that they address are as relevant today as they were then. We can see that they're old by the language that has changed and moved on, the social situations that are now different. But the hard issues of God's people remain the same, don't they? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Yet you visit her home and you can't help but note how tastefully everything's decorated. The quality of the furniture. The beautiful location. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Yet that other wife is so easy to get along with. She's always prepared and put together. The other husband is always on top of household projects. And he's thoughtful to boot. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's male or female servant, his ox or donkey, but you see their new car. You see the pictures of their Caribbean vacation. You wonder how that's fair. You hear that your friend's parents paid for her first car. You hear that your friend's parents paid for his college. And you can't help but envy a little bit. Isn't it amazing how relevant God's law, especially the Ten Commandments, Tenth Commandment is and remains. And when you think about all the ways that it exposes our hearts, when you see just how deep the root of selfish desires go within us, you may ask the very question that our catechism dares to ask. Why bother? Can anyone actually meet the commands that God gives us in these Ten Commandments? What's the point of having our noses rubbed in the dirt, so to speak, week after week as we hear God's law. Surely these commands represent the extra credit A-plus of God's people. And God will be satisfied with my C-plus or B-minus. Yet the catechism refuses to let go of this exacting standard. Not even a little bit. Instead, what we find is that it doubles down again. Keep the commandments. Preach them pointedly. As we explore this capstone command, we will see that it helps us grasp the full command of God's law. God calls us not only to outward action, but also to inward desires that are in conformity to his will, that reflect his image. And we see this this afternoon first by guarding against Pharisaism through the 10th commandment. You'll perhaps notice in the catechism's summary of this commandment, that it never actually uses the word covet. Instead of leading us through the various clauses of the commandment, neighbor's house, the neighbor's possessions, it does one better. It simply and sweepingly addresses any and all sinful thoughts. It's not enough for Christians to guard against coveting our neighbor's life. No, the Catechism says, The Tenth Commandment addresses all sinful desires, whether they relate to the Tenth Commandment or the First Commandment or the Ninth. But why is that so important? Well, because it helps us guard against legalism. We might think of the rich young ruler who one day came to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That young man confidently told Jesus that all of the commands of God's law he had kept from his youth since he was a boy. But then Jesus gives a response that reveals that this man's heart is still not in line with God's will. His outward actions may adhere to the Ten Commandments, but his heart, that's where the trouble is. He still has a self-serving problem. And that illustrates for all of us that The root of the issue of God's commands is found in our hearts. It's when we look into our desires that we see most clearly our shortcomings. And we see this problem of legalism or Pharisaism in the lives of the Pharisees, especially as they interact with Jesus there in Mark chapter 7. As we pick up that story, the tension begins right away in verse 1. We find that there's been a delegation sent from Jerusalem comprised of Pharisees, one of the ruling sects, And also of scribes, the teachers of the law, experts, religious experts come to see what Jesus is teaching. They're not just accidental bystanders. They're there 
to pick apart what he's saying. They're looking for something, anything, to catch him on. It doesn't take them long to do so. In verse 2, we find there that they have discovered a point of attack. They notice that Jesus' disciples don't follow the ritual cleanliness laws. Now, their tradition dictates that before eating, the rabbis and, of course, the rabbis' disciples, those learning from these Jewish teachers, would pour a little water on their hands. And then they would lift their hands slightly so that the water would run down their hands. And then they would lower their hands again, rub them together, and let the water drip off their fingertips. That was their ritual washing. You won't find this ritual recorded for us in the laws of Moses. But it was something that had been going on for many generations already in the Jewish religion at that time. It was passed down by godly men who had a desire to guide God's people, to help them live righteous lives. These elaborate traditions had been built up by sincere teachers. But as we begin to see here in Mark 7, the traditions have outgrown themselves. According to one source, a rabbi who once omitted washing his hands before eating bread was excommunicated. Another rabbi who had been imprisoned by the Romans almost died because he chose to use his daily ration of water, drinking water, to maintain his ritual washings. Of course, there's nothing wrong with being clean. But notice what was happening in the hearts of these teachers of the law. In their zeal for their own rules and traditions, the scribes and Pharisees are giving more attention to what they've taught than to what God teaches. The standard of righteousness that they hold themselves to is no longer what God has set forth in his word, but it's what they've seen done around them. It's no longer built on the summary of God's law, loving God above all else, loving your neighbor as yourself. Now it's the question of holding ourselves to a certain legal standard. And this change has had a terrible effect. You see, God's law, when it is properly applied, reveals sin within our hearts. It brings us back to living the way that God has called us to live, the way of blessing. But what we find with man-made regulations is that they leave room for a sort of works righteousness. The man-made rules that had once served as guidelines to keep God's people holy and faithful had begun to replace God's laws themselves. Jesus gives an example of how far it had gone. He gives the example of Corban, a word that means devoted to God. According to the fifth commandment, God's people are called to honor their father and mother. And that includes caring for them even into their old age. But their misapplied rules had some rabbis teaching that if a man was to take his money and make an oath of devoting it to God or devoting it to service in the temple, then that overruled all other responsibilities, even the responsibility this man might have to his aging parents. Money promised to God in the temple couldn't be spared to care for mere parents, and the oath was unbreakable. Even an outsider, a stranger to God's law, would see such a situation and and recognize that it's not just. It's not what God's law calls for. And yet many teachers among God's own people were so focused on their own rules, their their own layers of interpretation, that this is what they were teaching. 
And so Jesus applies the prophecy of Isaiah to this situation. Many of the Pharisees were revered among the people as the most faithful, the most godly. They were extremely careful to follow their own rules. But the rules they followed were no longer God's. They made their own. And where God's law addresses the heart, exposes selfishness, exposes failure to love God and neighbor, these new rules focused on an outward action. It left the hearts far from God. Where the Pharisees were concerned with what they did, their hearts were worshiping at the altars of pride and public opinion. That's the context of Mark 7. And into this context, we can take the 10th commandment and show how it would have aided the hearts of these Pharisees. You see, it's the perfect antidote to this Pharisaical legalism. When we're tempted to take God's commands at face value, like the rich young ruler, and go by and and put a check mark by every command that we've kept outwardly, when we're tempted to declare ourselves righteous, or at least righteous enough, the Tenth Commandment comes along and exposes our inward workings. It makes us realize that throughout all Ten Commands, it's not just what we do outwardly that God is concerned about, but it's also our heart. It's also our desire. It's also the intentions that go along with what we do. And so the Tenth Commandment guards us from doing exactly what the Pharisees did, that is, taking our own rules and becoming self-satisfied, making that the standard of holiness. It wasn't just the Pharisees that did this. We see this again and again with each generation of God's people. Pharisaism is alive and well, even today. One author tells of how he served in a church that exhibited this sort of behavior. In that church, godliness was reduced to following a certain list of rules, specifically a certain list of practices that the person abstained from. Mostly, chiefly, the drinking of alcoholic beverages. Those who followed this short list of rules were held to be good Christians, even though their hearts might be far from God. They were modern-day Pharisees. Legalism can take that form. It can also take another form. We're also legalists or Pharisees when we make our life about trying to achieve our own righteousness through law-keeping. But then the Ten Commandment comes. And it exposes us. It exposes our desires. It it leaves us before God with no excuse, no answer. It makes us see that the righteousness that we need is not found in our abilities. And so we look, secondly, to a righteousness found in Christ. The Tenth Commandment helps expose us to the truth of answer 114. It makes us see that even in this life, the holiest have only a small beginning of keeping God's commands. The catechism here is, or the Tenth Commandment here, is doing what the catechism tries to do back in Lord's Days 2 and 3, where it's setting the context, opening our eyes to our own sin, convincing us of our guilt before God. The Tenth Commandment gives us clear and undeniable proof of our inability to keep God's law. It, It cuts off any hope that we have of being righteous before God by our works. In many ways, Covetousness can be seen as that one sin that gives birth to all the others. We see this in the account of God's word. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. What happened? They desired to be like God. They coveted 
certain aspects of God's knowledge, and therefore they ate the forbidden fruit in order to make themselves wise. They committed covetousness. Or we think of what happens with an adulterer. An adulterer must first covet, must first want someone other than he whom he is married to before he breaks the commandment. Or we think of a thief. A thief must first covet something of his neighbor's estate before he goes and, and takes what isn't his. We see this in the world today, too. Voters grow jealous of what other people have. They covet what goes on in another nation. And they use the ballot box to redistribute wealth. We see it in business. Corporations covet the dominant position in the market, and they game the system to create laws that give them competitive advantages, even at the expense of other companies. We see it all around us. People want to look good in the sight of others, and they covet an earned reputation of respect. And so they besmirch the character of those around them. They lie about their own accomplishments. And so we see in the Ten Commandments and throughout God's Bible, examples of how covetousness is at the root of so many sins. And yet the effect of this declaration of guilt, this exposure at the hands of the Tenth Commandment, is intended not to drive us to despair, to hopelessness, but to drive us to Christ. In the Tenth Commandment, we see just how high a standard God has set for us in his law. Not even a thought or desire contrary to what God's will is. In the 10th commandment, we understand that there is no one righteous, not even one. No one except our Lord Jesus Christ. The 10th commandment invites us to examine our hearts before God. It asks, is there any way in which I have found righteousness in myself? Perhaps I'm stubbornly clinging to the ragged righteousness of years of faithful offerings or faithful church attendance a faithful volunteering in the Christian community. When I hear God's law read and the Spirit convicts me of sin, do I turn to the cross of Christ for my forgiveness? Do I trust Him fully? Or in self-righteousness, do I turn to the week ahead and determine to do better? Determine to stand before God on my own strength the following week? The words of Lord's Day 5, question and answer 13, must ring in our ears. Can I make this payment of sin myself? Certainly not. Actually, I increase my debt every day. That's the effect of the 10th commandment. And yet finding our righteousness in Christ, seeing that it's not in ourselves but in Him, leads us to anything but complacency. We see this in the Canons of Dort, that less well-known uh, one of our three forms of unity. It teaches this in the fifth head, Articles, Article 2, where it reads, Daily sins of weakness arise, and blemishes cling even to the best works of God's people, giving them continual cause to humble themselves before God, to flee for refuge to Christ crucified, to put the flesh to death more and more by the spirit of supplication and by holy exercises of godliness, and to strain toward the goal of perfection until they are freed from this body of death and reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. Our righteousness is not in us. It's in Christ. And yet that leads us to further desire, further serving Him. We see the same truth demonstrated in the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 119. 
We see that in spite of our sin, reassured by the gospel of Christ, we're called to delight in righteousness by choosing God's law. In those first eight verses that we read of this very long psalm, the psalmist, we see, knows and affirms the truths of God's law. But not only does he know God's law, he also at the same time says that I can't keep God's law. As we read these this poetry devoted to God's law, we see that he has the same zeal of a Pharisee, but this zeal is not towards legalism, but it's towards a heart of faith in God. Though he sees the beauty of God's law and affirms a desire to keep it, he admits his own insufficiency. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees, he says. And so in this psalmist's words, we begin to understand that the heart of the Tenth Commandment is not to get rid of all desires at all. That would be the goal of a Buddhist monk, to to have no more desires in this life. But that's not the goal of a Christian. No, as the psalmist shows us, the goal of a Christian is to change our desires, to change them in accordance with God's will, to delight in God's law, to love God, to love neighbor. And so we see again the contrast between the desire for God's law and the desire for law itself, legalism. The legalist looks, for, looks to the law for salvation. In the keeping of many rules, he or she finds a hope of righteousness. But that's a God that can't save. Further, it's a God that leads only to an inward, twisted view of God and neighbor. But we see that the Christian The godly one is a follower of God who has found freedom, a freedom in the righteousness of Christ. The Christian no longer sees the law as a set of rules, but as a pathway that leads to pleasing God. By addressing our heart desire, the 10th commandment reveals God's desire is not an outward obedience, like we might expect of slaves, but it's that heartfelt obedience that we might expect of children who love their parents. And so our catechism leads on. Yes, even the holiest have only a small beginning of godliness in this life. But nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commands. As Reformed Christians, we know certain terms very well. Among them, unconditional election and total depravity. Two of the marks of tulip. What these phrases do is they guard the biblical truth that we're not saved by our own works. That is, people before a holy and righteous God, we we fall short. But God has made a way of salvation through Christ. We can't keep God's law ourselves, but God in grace has chosen us to be his in election. These terms guard the sweet truths of good news, even for sinners. But as God's people, we must not be content with our sin or with our depravity. The story doesn't end there. The Catechism says that even the most holy has only a small beginning. But that doesn't mean that any of us excuse sin. Neither does it mean that any of us find room for self-serving in our lives. No, we find again and again that God has given us new hearts. Like the psalmist, we therefore declare, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless. Who walk according to the law of God. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with their heart. And we must mean it. 
Through Christ, we can catch a glimpse of the glory of serving God. We see the goodness of God's law in the life of our Savior. Even as the Tenth Commandment exposes our sinful desires, it brings us to confess them, to flee from them, to bring our desires even into subjection to Christ. This doesn't mean that we'll achieve perfection. Psalm 119 is the apex of poetry about God's law. It's a labor of love, 176 verses long, devoted to speaking about the beauty of God's law. But even the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 admits his own failures. He concludes it by saying that he has strayed like a lost sheep. So again and again in God's word, we see that we can't keep this law perfectly. The catechism reminds us of that again. But as we grow in godliness, we also grow in this desire to delight in God's law. Our lives may fall far short, but the work of the Spirit ensures that they will begin to be godly. Herman Velkamp puts it this way. He says, The life of those who have been converted to God is not a stagnant pool, but it's a flowing river. The well-known expression, a man remains only human, is invented by the devil and is gladly taken over by those who would rather affirm that in this life we have only a small beginning of obedience. But he who is converted to God has become a new person. He shares in that new life. And that life germinates and it buds forth in all directions. A small beginning, yes, but a beginning in righteousness. It is in light of this that we hear God's law each week and that we place ourselves under the law of God and its preaching so that we may see our sins, so that we may see also the glory of God's law so that we may have an awareness of sin that we might otherwise grow comfortable with or perhaps not even realize exists in our lives. That's why we desire to hear God's law, so that we may fuel our confession and repentance. But also so that we may never lose our desire to emulate God's law. Like the psalmist, we need to see its goodness so that we may follow it. And in the certainty of the goodness of God's law, we never stop striving, we never stop seeking from God the strength to keep it the grace of the Holy Spirit, so that we can be renewed more and more into the image, into the will of God. Totally depraved, yes, that is us. But as the commandments remind us, in Christ we become new creations. What we have failed to keep, he has kept. The commandments unveil to us that we will not be righteous in this life, But no one in Christ will be content to remain in the sin that is exposed. And so even as the 10th commandment exposes the extent of our sin, it drives us closer to Christ. May we as his people therefore see our need of him. May we echo the psalmist's words, longing for the Lord's salvation, delighting in his law, and living to the praise of our God.